I love movies. I always have. And I went through this phase in college where I was like really serious about movies. I was like, I'm going to learn like how screenplays are written. And I just got really into it. It was like a hobby. And I studied kind of how stories are crafted and how they're adapted for the medium of film. And it was just something I was into. And um, I learned when I did that, that most classic uh, movies follow a pretty uh, basic formula. And once you become aware of this formula, you'll start noticing it in lots of different uh, movies. So I want to go through that with you. So most uh, classic stories, but certainly screenplays, kind of follow this outline. You have Act 1, which is where you kind of meet uh, the characters and you learn a little bit of the background of what's going on. And at the end of Act 1 in a movie, it tends to be 20 or 30 minutes in, there's a twist of some type. Uh, some call it a plot point, but it's a twist that basically it it creates all the energy and drama of the movie. It's like a a challenge presents itself that then the characters have to try to overcome throughout the remainder of the story. So after that twist comes act two. Act two is when the characters work to overcome this challenge presented by the twist that happened. And usually what happens is is, uh, in the story, It'll seem like things are maybe moving toward a resolution or, or something's going to be uh, resolved, but then a second twist happens, a second plot point where uh, some additional challenge or uh, layer to the story that you're unaware of presents itself, and that creates additional drama and energy that kind of pushes the story forward to, uh, through Act 3 uh, to the end of the resolution. And so um, many, many films follow some version of this uh, format. So I want to give you one example. I tried to think of some movies that probably most of us have seen that I could point to as an example. And Disney has nailed this formula. So I'm going to go through Beauty and the Beast to illustrate what I was just talking about. So in Act 1, you get the background. Who are these characters? Belle. She lives in like a small town in France and she loves books. So we find out about that. We find out why the beast is a beast and what his whole story is. The twist at the end of that act one is this, that Belle ends up imprisoned by the beast for trespassing, and it creates all of this drama and kind of propels you in act two, which is when they're trying to overcome this challenge, and she's getting to know the beast, and in a textbook case of Stockholm Syndrome, she begins to love her captor, and they're doing things like having snowball fights, and she's seriously underestimating how serious he is about this snowball fight, and she gets pelted with snowballs, and that's kind of act two. They're getting to know each other. It's kind of moving toward this resolution, and then you get that second twist or plot point, which is Gaston and his group. They're going to come hunt down the beast and kind of ruin the progress that we thought was happening, and that kind of drives you through act three to the end of the story, the resolution when he's no longer a beast and they live happily ever after. I will say, when I was putting these graphics together and looking at those, that picture, I thought to myself, I wonder if they, like, if they stayed together for their whole life, did they ever have moments where they look back and he was like, remember that time I was like a beast and I imprisoned you and that was like really just kind of weird and <laughs> it's like, did they just forget about that? Um, this is the whole message, by the way. I'm just going to do snarky Disney commentary. I didn't even bother <laughs> to write a message about Ruth. It's all about, the, I'm just kidding. Um, but look, this, this story about Ruth and her family really has all of these classic elements of um, an unbelievable story. The difference is that the story of Ruth isn't a story, it's an account, a historical account of something that really happened. I mean, a screenwriter would dream of being able to write, of something, write something that was so rich and moving and inspiring and hopeful. And the resolution to the story of Ruth is nothing less 
than God's plan to redeem humanity. It's not just a happy ever after story for Ruth. It is God's plan for our redemption, a plan that comes to each of us through the generations, through history. So uh, by way of review, in case you weren't here uh, the last couple of weeks or missed one of them, I want to just talk about the basic um, points of the story of Ruth. And we're going to talk about it through the lens of this kind of three-act story format so that we're all kind of on the same page as we finish the story today. So act one of the Ruth story, you have this Israelite family moving from Israel to Moab, okay? And uh all right, we lost the picture. <laughs> they have no idea what's happening. All right, we might lose the picture in and out. So they move Israel, uh, this family from Israel to Moab. Now here's a map um, or a family tree. We'll start with the family tree of what this family was. You had Naomi married to Elimelech, and they had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And they moved from Bethlehem to Moab. And here's a map of this area. Uh, this is the Dead Sea. Bethlehem is up there in that blue box. That's where they were from. And in Act 1 of this story, they move to the east side of the Dead Sea, to Moab. Now, Moab, different people group, different culture. And we know the Israelites and Moabites did not like each other. They were at war. They were constantly having skirmishes. So really big deal that this Israelite family moved from Israel to Moab. Um, This was a big thing. It was not a small, and it was because of a famine that they moved. So Act 1 is this family. They're moving from their homeland to Moab. And then the twist at the end of that story is that all the men in the family die. So the husband, Elimelech, and then the two uh, sons that moved over there, they die. And so the only people left in this family, once this happens, is Naomi, who's kind of the matriarch, and then the two daughters-in-law who married into this family. Uh, Ruth was uh, one of them, and then Orpah, the other, but we read in the story that Orpah, once this all happens, she kind of just bows out of the family. And the only two people left are Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. And so that's kind of, as we go into Act 2, the twist was that all of this happened, all this upheaval, these, these men dying. So Act 2 is Ruth and Naomi, the two that are left, going back to Bethlehem. And they're going to try to overcome this challenge, they're going to try to pick up the pieces of their life and find a way to live. And this was a big deal because in that world, patriarchal world, uh, Naomi, the matriarch of the family, was kind of almost like socially dead. She had no husband, no father, no sons to provide for her. And she was going to be relegated probably to a life of begging. That's the prospect. But in this shocking act of love and, and faithfulness, Ruth goes with Naomi She's Moabite. Ruth is Moabite, and she knows the Israelites do not like Moabites, and she says, I'm going to stick with you. And so she moves, Ruth moves from her homeland, Moab, to Israel with her mother-in-law. They're both widows. And she moves to to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, and she's immigrating not for the promise of a better life, which most immigrants are expecting. She's going with the expectation of a worse life. Moving to a place where the people don't like you if you're from Moab. And so this is kind of act two is this tragedy has happened where all the men have died. They're moving back to Israel, Ruth and Naomi together. And they're going to kind of see how do we make a life now in light of all this tragedy we've experienced. And so what we studied, what we looked at last week was how Ruth uh, was gleaning in the fields. That means she was literally going into fields where the harvest was happening and just picking up the leftover scraps of the crops to just try to live, just eat. 
for her and Naomi. And um, she happens to end up, happens to, obviously God led her there, uh, to the field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz, uh, we learned, had a very special role in Naomi's extended family. He was uh, uh, called a guardian redeemer. Uh, the Hebrew term is goel. Uh, that's um, what Boaz was. It was a person in the extended family who was designated to help the family out if they encountered some sort of tragedy. And so Ruth and Naomi, they come to Israel. They don't know what their life's going to be like. Ruth is like, I got to eat. I'm going to go pick up some leftover crops in this field over here happens to be in the field of Boaz, who is a designated redeemer for the family. So we're in act two and we're starting to see this glimmer of hope. Okay. Like we're getting to know this guy, Boaz, whose role is to help out family who are in need. We are in need. Maybe he's going to do something here. And Boaz is being so kind to Ruth and he's invited her uh, to his table and giving her all this food. And, and so that's kind of where we ended the story last week. We're in act two. They're kind of picking up the pieces of their life. No snowball fights, but it's going well. Things are looking up, uh, but we're about to hit that second twist in the story. And so I want to keep reading. If you brought your Bible with you, we're going to be in Ruth three. So turn to Ruth three. If you're unfamiliar with the layout of the Bible, Ruth is in the Old Testament it's after the book of Judges, before the book of First Samuel. So we'd invite you to turn there. There's Bibles on the table if you don't have one. Um, on that note, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home with you on the table. Uh, but we will have the scripture up on the screen, as we always do, um, for you to follow along. Um, so we'll be in Ruth 3. We'll continue our story. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Highlight threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Highlight that. Get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. Highlight that. Uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. So here you see the motherly concern that Naomi is expressing for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She doesn't just want her fed like, okay, we're, we're eating, you're getting these crops, that's good. She's trying to take care of Ruth in the long run. Like, I want to make sure you're good, like, long term. And, and really, you know, it keeps speaking of Ruth as Naomi's daughter-in-law. At this point, she's really more of a daughter. I mean, they're each other. That's all they have. And so she's expressing that concern for her. I want to make sure you're taken care of. And she sees that Boaz, this family member who could potentially rescue them out of their desperation, has been really nice to Ruth. And Naomi's like, maybe there's more there. Maybe God's working something in there. And so Naomi's going to try to start moving some things around to see if there might be a, a greater solution here. And she says, Boaz, he's going to be at the threshing floor. Now, I want to show you a picture of what that looked like. This is a picture of a threshing floor during the harvest. Uh, this is where they would take all the grain that they harvested, and they would take this uh, threshing sledge down here and some other tools, and they would... Um, 
separate the grain from the stalk so that it could then be used uh, to make food or to sell. And so during the busy harvest season, that's kind of where they'd end up at the end of the day. They'd take everything they harvested, they'd take it there, and they're starting to process it uh, for sale. And so uh, Naomi is saying, look, uh, oh, by the way, here's a, uh, I forgot I've got this graphic too. It's an artist's rendering of kind of the agricultural life of ancient Israel. Um, they, they would have these uh, cows or oxen pull the threshing sledge, the, the thing I showed you in the previous picture, and they would just literally do laps around, and as they ran over the stalks, it would separate the grain out. And so you can see this would be like a center of work at the end of a day of harvesting. And, and Naomi is saying, okay, Ruth, I got a plan. Like, at the end of the day, Boaz is going to be there. He and his harvesters, they're going to be working there, and you should go there. He's probably going to be so exhausted, he's just going to crash. He's going to fall asleep there, and, and you should go there at night. It's going to be quiet. You can probably have a private conversation. Um, uh, Naomi told her to dress a certain way in her best clothes. That would have signaled to Boaz that she's no longer in mourning over her, lo- her uh, deceased husband. And that, so she's, she's open to the possibility of a relationship. Uh, Naomi says, go there. He'll be asleep. Uncover his feet, which might strike us as a little bit strange. A uh, couple things happening there. Uh, that would be a a way to wake him up, just kind of get his attention, um, but also signal her interest in him. Now, there is a little risk in her doing this, because in scripture and in historical sources, we know at this time that um, prostitutes could be found at the threshing floor during the harvest season, and so Ruth's actions, if she wasn't quite careful enough, could be taken in a way that she didn't intend they could be taken as being too forward. They could confirm some negative stereotypes that Israelites had of Moabite women. So Naomi's saying, go, it's going to be quiet. Maybe you can talk to him, you know, just one-on-one uh, when all the rest of the workers are gone. And so that's Naomi's plan. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. And then highlight this phrase. We're going to talk about this in a second. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, and here's the second plot twist, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing... As surely as the Lord lives, and I would highlight that phrase, as surely as the Lord lives, I will, I will do it. I'll redeem you. Lie here until morning. So she laid at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. So the couple things going on in this scene that we want to notice. So she says, uh, spread the corner of your garment over me. That was, uh, would have signaled, I, I am willing to, to uh, be your wife. Like, I'm, I'm available. 
And, and Boaz essentially agrees, uh, yeah, like I would be willing to do this, but there's that plot twist I mentioned. Boaz is a guardian redeemer in that family, but there's another one in that family who's more closely related. And legally, that person kind of has like first right of refusal to redeem Ruth and Naomi's family and everything that that means. And so Boaz is saying, I, I would be happy to do it, but I, I just can't as long as this problem is here. But he makes this oath, that phrase I had you highlight. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, if this man won't step up, I will. That, that's like him saying, as God is my witness, like this is going to happen. He's going to do it or I'm going to do it. And so don't be afraid. Uh, but there are some legal hoops that Boaz is going to have to jump through. So let's keep going. Verse 16, this is when Ruth goes back to her mother-in-law and tells her what happened. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. I love that little comment. That wasn't in the original story, but as she's retelling it, she's like, yeah, he didn't want to come back here empty-handed, so here's some food for you. Uh, verse 18, then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So you see that uh, Naomi is encouraging Ruth here, because Ruth, you know, she's probably anxious. She's really kind of out on a limb here. She did the whole threshing floor, put your garment over me. Like this is for a Moabite immigrant, poor woman. She's really vulnerable and out on a limb. And Naomi is reassuring her, just be patient. Boaz is trustworthy. He's going to take care of this. And so this next scene that we go to in chapter four, this is act three of the story. This is when that second twist, the legal problem is going to be resolved. And we're going to see how the story all ends up. So chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, highlight town gate, and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer, the other one, he had mentioned, came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders, highlight 10 of the elders. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. So let's talk about what's happening there. They go to the town gate. Uh, this is a picture of a, a town gate um, that archaeologists have uncovered in Israel from the same era. Uh, there were kind of these different, um, almost like courtyards in the gate of a town, and you can see the bench carved around there. The town gate in these old Israelite cities functioned as the courthouse. This is where legal matters were decided. And so um, this is where decisions were made, and they had to have at least 10 men Israelite elders in the city to be there to make these decisions. So that's why Boaz says, I'm going to the town gate. Here's the other guy who's got the legal standing to redeem Ruth. I've got him. Now 10 elders, let's go. I mean, that was just exactly what you would expect of uh, kind of how they would settle a legal problem. It's interesting how Boaz presents the situation. He presents it as essentially a real estate deal initially. That's like his strategy. He, he calls a guy and he says, hey, uh, would you buy this land from Naomi, this widow, because that will help 
her survive and you'll be taking care of her and you're the Goel, the redeemer in this family, uh, would you do that? And the guy says, yeah, I'll do it. Um, there was a little, very little risk for the man to do it in this occasion, uh, in this instance, because uh, Naomi had no sons. There was no one that she had who could inherit. And so he's thinking, okay, I'll buy this land. I'll do my good deed of getting, you know, taking care of Naomi and buying this land from her. But then the land will be in my family and my sons can inherit this. And, and so I can be a redeemer with really no cost to me. Ultimately, this land will probably stay mine. And so this is kind of a good deal. But Boaz isn't finished. So let's keep reading. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Highlight that. You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because, and I would highlight this, I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And then this little explanatory comment that the author makes. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. It's like the ancient receipt. Here, take my shoe. Um, (laughs) Verse 8, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. So this is kind of Boaz's strategy. Hey, you know, you're the redeemer in this family. Would you buy this land from Naomi? You can kind of help her financially, and, you know, you'll get this land in your family. And the guy's like, yeah, sounds good. And then he's, Boaz is like, yeah, by the way, um, if you do that, uh, if you buy this land and all that, you also need to marry Ruth to carry on her deceased husband's name. It's like a two-for-one deal. You get the land and you get Ruth. And this guy's like, no, 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 whoa. This is not what I thought this was. I thought this was just land, like marrying Ruth. Like all what that entails, that whole deal, is fully absorbing the family debt, purchasing the land, which is costly, and marrying a Moabite woman. And remember in Israel, they hated Moabites. And so he's like, forget it. Like this is not worth it. Plus, if Ruth, who's young, Naomi's a generation earlier, Ruth, who's young, if she has sons, has children, they'll stand to inherit some of that land. That's why the guy's saying my estate might be in danger, uh, because it's going to be divided up among more people. And so this guy, he's just saying, look, there's way too much family and financial upheaval. And so this guy's not willing to help them if it's going to cost him. That's what's revealed. And so he forfeits his claim, and allows Boaz, who's next in line, to step up as the redeemer. And so to signify the transfer, the guy takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz, which is a little gross, but they knew what it meant. Um, Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. Remember, that's her deceased husband and two sons. I bought all that land. Verse 10. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malone's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, and I would highlight this, we are witnesses. May the Lord, and they're, they're saying this to Boaz, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Circle those names. Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem, 
Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Circle Tamar. These are names from earlier in Israelite history. And so what we just read is the formal declaration of purchase of Boaz redeeming this family out of their difficult circumstances. And I don't know if you caught this, Ruth's entire identity just changed. She goes from foreigner, outsider, poor, widow, just on the fringe margins of society, and she is instantly blessed by these elders in Israel and said, we hope that she is like these revered matriarchs in our city, in our, in our people, Rachel and Leah and Tamar. There, it's the council was instantly declaring to Ruth, you are one of us now. You are part of this family. And so now we get the epilogue. These are the last few verses of the book of Ruth. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For, and I want you to highlight this next phrase. This is just a remarkable phrase. We're going to talk about this in a second. Your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. Your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Circle Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Circle David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, King David. What the women said to Naomi about Ruth is nearly miraculous. After seeing Ruth's selfless devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi, coming to Israel and all that that entailed, and seeing everything that God had done through that situation, these women say of Ruth, a Moabite woman, that she is more valuable than seven Israelite sons. And if you know anything about that culture, family was everything, and boys were valued because that's how you carried on the family name, and it was a patriarchal society. So people wouldn't have even said at that time, one woman is more valuable than, than uh, one son. Like, but she's, they're saying seven sons. Ruth is more valuable than seven Israelite sons. And by the way, the number seven in ancient Israelite culture symbolized perfection. It wasn't just the number seven. It, it signified wholeness and perfection. They're saying to Naomi, Ruth, this Moabite, is more precious to you than the perfect family. The best family you could ever dream of. Ruth is more valuable than that. You know, Naomi had been this widow that from every angle in that society would have been viewed as sort of a tragic figure, childless, no father, husband, lost everything. Couldn't have imagined, she could not have imagined the joy that God would bring out of that pain. Ruth's son was the grandfather of King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, of God's people. That's what this story was about. 
And so that's the end of the story of Ruth as, as it's described in the Bible, but it's not the end of the story for us. You see, we've been talking about, through the lens of this account, what it means to be redeemed and restored, rescued when you can't rescue yourself, rescued at a cost to the rescuer. That's what this has all been about. And in this story, Boaz is officially the redeemer. He's the one who, who bought the land and paid the price and married Ruth and, and, and um, you know, made the costly effort to redeem their family. So Boaz is the, is the obvious one, but there's really three redeemers in this story. So I want to talk about what they are and what that means for our life. The first redeemer in this story really is Ruth. She's really the first redeemer in this story. She herself was a widow. She's from Moab, and she immigrates with her grieving mother-in-law back to her mother-in-law's country, Israel, where they hate Moabites. She knows her life is going to be worse there, expects it to be worse. And yet that costly act of sacrificial love became the catalyst ultimately for Naomi's redemption. So Ruth really is Naomi's redeemer in the way that she acted on her behalf. Then Boaz, yes, he is one of the redeemers as well. He risked social shame for uh, welcoming into his home, to his table, Ruth the Moabite. And he marries her and he buys this land, which cost a lot of money. He assumed whatever debt there was in the family. It was an extremely costly thing to do to redeem Ruth, and Boaz did that. So Ruth is a redeemer for Naomi. Boaz is a redeemer for Ruth. And the countercultural kindness that they showed is a reflection of how God loves us. Their actions really are kind of a shadow of and foreshadowing the true redeemer who redeems all of us, the third redeemer behind and foreshadowed by this story, which is Jesus. This points forward to Jesus, this whole story. Christ is our redeemer. Like Ruth left her home in Moab to come to Israel expecting rejection, Jesus left his home in heaven to come to earth to make his home with us expecting people will reject him. Like Boaz welcomed Ruth to his table, God welcomes us to his table through faith in Jesus. Like Boaz paid the high cost to restore Ruth and Naomi, Christ assumed the debt of our sins and paid the highest price for us, his life. And so if we are going to love others in this same way in our life, sacrificially, as Ruth did for Naomi, as Boaz did for Ruth, we have to look to Jesus. We have to look to him as our example and as our strength because the way Jesus has loved us is a model for how we should love others. This exact thing is what John spoke about, Jesus' disciple, in the letter he wrote um, called 1 John. It's in the New Testament. 1 John 4, you don't have to turn there, we'll put it on the screen. John says this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, and I would highlight the rest of this verse, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
that word so in that phrase, since God so loved us, you could translate that a little differently like this. Since God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another in that way. God changed Ruth's story, and he can change ours. We can be a part also of God changing other people's stories, acting as his ambassadors, loving others as we have been loved by God. I think about when Ruth left Moab, you know, everything she had known her whole life, in the depths of her grief as a recent widow, walking with her mother-in-law, who was a recent widow, and she's stepping on the road toward Israel, this enemy nation. I don't think Ruth could have ever imagined all that God was going to do through her and her family through the generations. I mean, Ruth's great-grandson would become King David, and, and, and David, when he was growing up, grew up in that same town of Bethlehem that Ruth and Boaz and Naomi were living in. And I think about David, he's, he's a teenage boy, he's in Bethlehem, he's learning to be a shepherd, he's just living his life. And I imagine he would have heard stories about those, you know, heathen Moabites, those losers who live across the Dead Sea, and, you know, just these terrible, nasty Moabites. And I, I wonder if he ever thought to himself, you know, I think my great-grandmother Ruth was a Moabite. I, I'm part Moabite. Ruth couldn't have imagined that God would anoint that shepherd boy to be king of Israel. And she certainly couldn't have imagined that when David was king of Israel, that God would make a promise to him that one of David's descendants would rule heaven and earth on an everlasting throne. And that Ruth's story would be a part of that. When you flip over to the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, This is when Matthew is introducing Jesus to the world. Who is Jesus? He gives Jesus' genealogy. And I'm going to read a little bit of it for you. He's telling, where did Jesus come from? Gospel of Matthew starts this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David, skipping down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. I want to highlight something for you. All those names in yellow in Jesus' genealogy are from the book of Ruth. The story of Ruth is woven into the story of Jesus. These are his ancestors, and God was working through them in ways that ultimately would find their fulfillment in Jesus's life. God was working behind the scenes in the story of Ruth. Interesting, God never speaks in the book of Ruth, but he's involved, and he's helping guide things, and Ruth was remembered a thousand years later when Jesus arrived as one of his ancestors. She made it into the genealogy of Jesus. And by the way, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz's old stomping grounds. Same place. And Ruth is one of our ancestors too in the faith if we have placed our faith in Christ. I want to show you ultimately how this family tree ended up looking. So you have Naomi up there. Her husband and two sons die. There would have been no formal reason for her to maintain a relationship with Ruth or daughter-in-law, Moabite daughter-in-law, but yet, because of Ruth's devotion 
they sort of circumvented that, and, and she stayed connected in that family. Ruth marries Boaz. They have Obed, who has Jesse, who has King David. And then you go down through the generations, and ultimately, that line leads to Jesus. And you know what about Jesus? There are infinite branches off of that family line for anyone who places their faith in him to join that family lineage. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you have been adopted, as the New Testament says, into the family of God, into this heritage. We are welcomed into God's family as his children. Christ is our redeemer. And he's a perfect one. He's the better Boaz. He's our rescuer. The one who paid the high cost of our restoration, of our rescue to bring us into a relationship with him. And it's because we've been loved in that costly way that we know what it looks like to love others well, as John said. Because God has loved us in this way, we should love others in that way. And Ruth and Boaz give us a great example of how that can look. I have one application point for you. I would suggest this week that you read Ruth. In one sitting, four chapters, probably take you 10, 15 minutes max, depending on how quick you are at reading. But I would encourage you to read it in one sitting and reflect on these themes that we've talked about the last few weeks. Steadfast love, faithfulness, redemption, countercultural kindness, those themes that are so evident in this story. I would encourage you to reread it and think about how this is part of your spiritual heritage if you've placed your faith in Jesus.